Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And welcome to the Just a Story podcast. Vintage Coolness Edition. So these are some of our older episodes that we want to keep up because they have some great information. But we realize that the audio quality is a little... Mm, is crap. Yeah, it's kind of crap. But we hope that they have all the charm of a vintage vinyl album with scratches and character. And we really just don't want to re-record them. <laughs> So, production note, we're leaving these up, but if you're a new listener, the audio quality greatly improves with the episode hooking up and going forward. And I'd also say we uh, know what we're doing a little more. Yeah, but these have a special place in our hearts. We wanted you to have access to them, and we hope that you will pardon the character. That's right. It's character. (laughs) So, thanks for listening, guys, and enjoy. Without further ado, here are our vintage, wonderful episodes. So the other day, my mom comes home from Sunday school class, fired up. They have been talking about the power of the devil and all those who worship him and the blight of this phenomena on the face of the modern American society. So according to her and Miss Ruthie and Miss Julianne, There's an epidemic. The Satanists are after our children, and they are going so far as to create underground networks of daycare workers that routinely abduct these children and conduct rituals on them during school hours. They also said that there's this game that people play where they pretend to be wizards and witches and sell their soul to the devil. It's like, I don't know, dragons and demons or I don't know, something like that. Anyway, people pretend to be these people. They're not. And they do terrible things in the game. But because these people are deviants anyway, it gets to them in a really big way. And they stop being able to see the line between fantasy and reality. And they think they are these characters. And sometimes when things happen in the game, they happen like in real life too. And so like this one guy had a curse put on him in the game and then he really died. I don't know. I guess maybe they're working together. I didn't know it was such a big problem, but I mean, if they said it in Sunday school, it has to be true, right? It doesn't. One time, when I was little, uh, my dad ran it. When I was little, my dad church. A man came out of the rest of Hello, and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Every week, we're going to take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. And what our myths and misdeeds, fears, and fables say about us as humans. Today's story is a very interesting one that circulated throughout the 1980s into the 1990s. And that story is that satanic cults are coming to sacrifice your babies, which seems more at home in maybe the 1780s and the 1790s. You're right. Stories like those have been going around since then. And before then. For millennia, literally. And the outside of groups were always pegged as Satanists coming to steal your children and sacrifice them or use them in some sort of blood ritual. 
the idea that wicked old members of outside communities were often used as boogeymen to scare children goes back as long as time itself, basically. This started in the 80s, though. Right. And it started not with a whimper, but with a bang. There was a book released by a woman named Michelle Smith, which was published in 1980, called Michelle Remembers. And did she publish this on her own? No, she published it with her psychiatrist, Dr. Lawrence Padzer. Dr. Padzer began treating Michelle for depression after she had a miscarriage in 1976. She had something important to tell him, but she couldn't remember what it was. So, doctor. Yes, ma'am. If a patient came to you and said, I have something that I think I need to tell you, but I can't remember what it is, what would you say to them? I would probably either put them under hypnosis or give them a drug-induced state to try to figure out what they wanted. I think that's medically appropriate. I think that Dr. Padzer must have gone to your medical school. That's right. Must have, could be. And so he did just that. He put Michelle under hypnosis, and for 25 minutes straight, she began screaming and then speaking in the voice of a five-year-old girl. Doesn't that sound like a miracle? It does. Yeah, it does. So, under hypnosis, Michelle remembered the most amazing thing. Was she a superhero? No. Too bad. It is too bad, because what she did remember was that she was... Tortured by her mother in Canada in the 50s. Canada. 50s Canadian housewives. Ah! But in reality, her mild-mannered mother, who was a religious woman, was a Satanist. Michelle claims. So was she really a Satanist? No. So what sort of Satanic things did this mild-mannered Canadian housewife Due to her poor five-year-old daughter. Well, she told Padser that during rites she was tortured, locked in cages, sexually assaulted, forced to take part in various rituals, that she witnessed several murders, and was then forced to rub the blood and body parts of various murdered babies and adults over her body. More murdered babies. Murdered babies. Babies. All of this supposedly took place in cemeteries and unidentified basements. I'm guessing not like finished basements either, not like a game, rompus room. I can't see this happening in a rompus room. Right, there probably weren't post movie posters and a TV, extra TV down there. No, definitely not a fridge with cold beverages. No, not like anywhere. Else. No, not anywhere in sight. Only blood Blood. Just blood, not even wine. They didn't ferment it. They drank it straight. The coup d'etat, the greatest of Michelle's recovered memories, was about an 81-day torture ritual, which concluded when the group summoned... Who do you think they summoned? Was it a clown? <laughs> it wasn't a clown. Close. It's a Satan. Yes! Same thing? Yeah, same thing. Trick question. That's a little bit about Michelle's book, Michelle Remembers. And if you have not had a chance to see this cover of one of the paperbacks, you need to just go to Google, type in Michelle Remembers, image search, and you shall see the glory and the melodrama that is the cover. It's fabulous. There may or may not be a small child in a circle of candles with something hovering ominously behind her. Just, is it a clown? It's kind of. It's always a clown. Trick question. So that's her summary of events. There's another story. There is the story of her relationship and evangelical efforts that she made with Dr. Padzer. 
So she was married at this time, and so was he. Yes, that's true. But not for long. Eventually, like, very quickly, they were both divorced and married to one another. By the time they traveled to the Vatican in 1978 to warn all the good holy men about the satanic cults that were killing various babies in the United States and Canada, they were married. A lovely honeymoon. A lovely honeymoon. Well, they also appeared on Oprah and Geraldo. I assume that was more of the honeymoon period. So this book came out in 1980. Correct. It was huge. Like you said, they appeared on Oprah, they appeared on Geraldo. Everyone bought this book. And everyone bought this story. I think that may be the more important part of this. So one thing that I found interesting was that her mother was dead by this time. So there was no one for her to actually accuse. But her father... A man named Proby said, and I quote, that there was no hanky-panky or devil-worshipping. So I think that we can just take that as fact, because anybody that says hanky-panky must be serious. Can I get that on a t-shirt? There was no hanky-panky or devil-worshipping. Yes, print them now. But he cited several incidents in the book where Michelle lied. For example, she said that she didn't grow up with any kind of religious upbringing. And he says that she and her mother and sisters went to church every Sunday. So you see like the difference between always and never there. It seems like there might be some little gray area. Little gray area, yeah. She said that she was poisoned during the satanic rites. No. She wasn't uh once she she was treated for poisoning. She drank paint and turpentine when her father was cleaning paintbrushes. And then another time, she ate shoe polish. So, she was a bright child. It was a satanic shoe polish? It was satanic shoe... Satan doesn't wear shoes, silly. He has hooves. Don't be ridiculous. You can polish hooves, right? Not with shoe polish. And there was one other big incident. Oh, yes, yes, yes. She said that she was in a horrible car accident and that the devil worshippers reenacted it during the ritual in which they summoned the clown... I mean, Satan... Her father says that they were, I'll quote him, What I do recall was us once coming across a fatal crash in our car. We saw two cars smashed together and a woman lying on the road bleeding to death. Her intestines were hanging out. It was a horrible sight. Michelle started to scream and we couldn't stop her for ages. So again, you see the difference between like being in a car crash and having it reenacted with Satan himself appearing at the end and seeing it? A little different. A little different. Slightly different. Now, one might say, what could account for these differences? And I happen to think, in my uneducated opinion, that it might have something to do with the techniques they use to recover these memories. Do you agree, Doctor? I do. So, he had a very interesting new technique that he didn't necessarily invent, but was the person that brought it to the forefront of psychological medicine. It was called Recovered Memory Therapy. Or uh, Repressed Memory Therapy. I've seen both. It has been. It is both. So in this, he would use guided visualization to try to bring back these suppressed and hidden memories from her very traumatic childhood. With Recovered Memory Therapy, they would use hypnosis, drug-induced states, uh, massage is one thing that I saw that I thought was crazy interesting. I bet he did use massage. I bet he did too. And th- with this, they were able to bring back these suppressed memories. Of course, this was a new thing in the field, but it was hugely popularized for about these 10 years or so. 
and then completely discredit it. There were several studies that showing that this was completely worthless, that you'd be able to implant fake memories into people very easily. So how was that tested? So there was one researcher, Elizabeth Loftus, and she did a study where she was able to take adults and using kind of guided imagery. Under impl- hypnosis? Right. Implant. I'm not sure, honestly, if it was under hypnosis or not. And they would implant memories that they were lost in a shopping mall at six years of age. And they would also bring other people in that kind of tried to corroborate the story, like they would encourage it. And this memory was implanted. These were all people that did not have this kind of episode. Yeah. Right. You know, other instances where one patient, Sherry Hines, and described how a therapist used the method to help her retrieve a memory of being abused by her father. So she started where her father, when she was young, would you know, draw fun pictures on the mirror and draw in the steam and cartoon characters. You know, a fun thing his dad would do probably to entertain his kids while he was in the bath. And that was the seed for a memory. And you start with that, and the therapist would then say, Okay. You're in the bathtub. Your dad is there. He's drawing in the mirror. What is he drawing? And so she says, Snoopy, whatever. And then Woody the, ther- the Woodpecker. Woody the Woodpecker. Aw. Then the therapist would say, Now your father is coming over towards you in the bathtub. He's reaching out to touch you. Where is he touching you? And that's how he created the memories. It seems like in creepy therapist voice. You're not going to say, my nose, he's touching my nose. <laughs> you know? Exactly. It was a very leading memory, especially to an adult you know, who now has all this other kind of knowledge. So that seems legit. Was pulling very real stories of Satanism from people's lost memories. Well, I'd like to point out that in Michelle's case, she didn't start with, I had this weird memory of being... In a setting where there was a bonfire and people were dancing around naked. And I'd like to explore that more. It was like, hey, I've got something to tell you and I just don't know what it is. Well, you could you could say like the car wreck, that traumatic experience could have been a seed. You drew that from that seed of a very young girl seeing a horrific accident, which something like that can lead to PTSD-like reaction. You do not have to actually be involved in the incident to have a PTSD-like response. So she could have had a little bit of a very traumatic incident there that he was able to say, just kind of pull from. Right, seeing a car crash on the side of the highway or Satan himself, I mean, tomato, tomato, right? I mean, it's a big leap. I'm <laughs> just saying there may have been a somewhat small Yeah, seeds. I mean, I see, it's interesting to see how things grew. You know, the distortions that came up. And I'm sure that once the satanic ritual abuse was uncovered, it was expected to show up in every memory. Insert disclaimer. The It's Just a Story podcast does not endorse the use of repressed memory therapy. We do, however, endorse the use of sarcasm. Thank you. So one other thing we do endorse and we have done before is Dungeons & Dragons. I've never played Dungeons & Dragons. Once again, you disappoint me. (laughs) I think I'd be really good at it. I think I'd be too good. That's why people don't ask me to play. Well, probably because if you put a curse on somebody, it would... Actually work. Actually work. <laughs> I'm not a Satanist, by the way. They don't actually put curses on people. We'll get to that later. 
So, Dungeons and Dragons. You are all, I'm sure, at least moderately familiar with the idea of Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons is a fantasy role-playing game that became popular in the 70s. Started in the late 70s. 80s is really when it hit its stride. Got kicking. Since I've not had the privilege of joining in a D&D game, is it called a game? It's called a role-playing game. But do you say, like, when you sit down to do it, do you say, like, this is a game, like, this game is going well, or do you say, like, this quest? It's quest, right? Well, you go on quests. In In the game. game. Okay. The official title of these types of games, just like something's a video game, is a role-playing game. It's kind of almost the proto-video game. So, you sit down and you play this game and you have a character, correct? Right. And your character goes on quest. Correct. You have a dungeon master who leads you through That sounds so awesome. I want to be the dungeon master. Like I said, you try to kill people, maybe. So you have your dungeon master and they kind of lead you through the quest. So for the purposes of this exercise, I'm the dungeon master. Now continue. Uh, If you need to be called that, I guess I can start calling you dungeon master. All the time. All the time? Yes. Okay, Dungeon Master. Thank you. And so this was completely a fantasy role-playing game. Different characters. You could have magical characters and there were fighting characters. There were mythological creatures. Were you always the same character? A lot of times. People could have multiple characters, but you did have a character that you created. People had their favorite characters, of course. And they had particular powers. You would build that character up over time, learning spells, uh, building up armor, learning sword fighting, things like that by earning points. So this is very much like World of Warcraft. Is the World of Warcraft. Okay, so over time people would get attached to their characters, they would invest a lot of energy and skill, presumably, in building them up and making them powerful so that they could better quest. Correct. So this was a based in magic but, as many people would tell you, it's fantasy. No one believes they're actually casting magic spells. That makes sense. So it's like a game that people play where they pretend stuff. Yes. Okay, then why did so many people freak out about Dungeons & Dragons? So in the 1980s, there were several claims about people that killed themselves related to the devil and demons in Dungeons and Dragons. Wait, the devil and demons are in Dungeons and Dragons? Yes. Is that what the D&D stands for? That's the... Devils and demons! Exactly. Ha! I cracked the code. They thought they could outsmart us. Oh, no. The first case that's called the D&D suicide involves a young man named James Dallas Egbert III. Which I think being named James Dallas Egbert III may have been more of an influence. Maybe so. Egbert III, I mean, you were going to get teased. So he, he was a big D&D player. He was a big fan of it, had friends, where that's where they, they got together and played. And they, wrote, they were enrolled in University of North Carolina at the time that all this was going on. And they would actually use these tunnels under the school to go down and play D&D. Right, and then they also would do some kind of role-playing with it, you know, kind of your what's now modern LARPing, which is live-action role-playing. Ooh, um, that sounds really cool. Dungeon Master LARPing. 
1978, he disappeared, and people believed that it had something to do with his involvement with Dungeons and Dragons. And then, sadly, two years later, the mental illness that Egbert had been dealing with for quite a long time took hold in a stronger form, and he killed himself. He shot himself. And I think that somehow the like going missing related to D and D and the fact that he committed suicide and like those things both being kind of cir- circulated in association with his name created this weird amalgamated story that kind of combined both of them. For some reason, they were combined together, but they were not related at all. So, and interestingly enough, this. And just to prove that this story really got into the general consciousness of society, there was a wonderful TV movie made in the 80s called Mazes and Monsters, starring a... Or Eminem. Eminem. (laughs) Starring Academy Award winning actor... Tom Hanks, America's Sweetheart. Uh, And in this movie, he is very much based on this story where he gets involved in D&D and he actually has a psychotic break. Uh And he becomes his character. And in the movie, he doesn't kill himself in the movie, but he becomes eternally stuck in that character. So in his mind, he's playing D&D and like on the outside, he's like in a catatonic state or something? (laughs) Or, oh no, he just thinks like... Dissociative fugue genuinely way. believes that he is Morty Pants the Magnificent. Uh, he was a cleric named Pardue. Yes. So he was forever that cleric. So this idea of this demonic causing death of our young innocent children, evil game D&D, was really brought into the forefront with the lovely woman named Patricia Pollan. Now, she did have a very tragic incident in her life. Her son, Irving, was a very active D&D player, and he killed himself June 9th, 1982. But she believed that this was directly related to the game. So, in the years between Egbert's disappearance and her son's death and this movie being released, people began to think that everyone who played D&D was incapable of distinguishing fantasy from reality. Miss Pulling's claims were very interesting because she went so far as to file two wrongful death suits. She filed a lawsuit against the creators of the game. The publisher, yeah. And she also filed a lawsuit against her son's principal because his character because his character had cast a curse on her son's character. And this was a real curse. She believed that, I'm not sure if she thought, okay, I can't distinguish because it's all so crazy. I can't tell if she thought the curse actually worked in real life or she thought that the curse so affected him and so upset him that he took his own life. My read on it is that she thought the curse was real. Oh, so she thought that this curse was legit working in IRL. Because she went ahead and found the group bothered about Dungeons and Dragons. Or... Bad. And went on every talk show just saying how terrible this game was and how he's bringing Satanism into the real world and causing all of our poor innocent children to get caught up in this thing. And so she described D&D as a fantasy role-playing game which used demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex perversion, 
homosexuality, prostitution, satanic-type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon-summoning, necromantics, divination, and other teachings. Let's get that on a t-shirt. These are a few of my favorite, favorite things. Other than suicide, I have to say oh, that. Yes, and rape yeah. is really, you know, it's not so great time. either. Or cannibalism. But, mm, I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty bad. But sex perversion. Voodoo. That's fun. That is fun. Homosexuality, also kind of cool with that. Prostitution, whatever. Gambling. Yeah, why not? Sure. You can combine a few of these things and have a really good time in New Orleans. It's true. Divination? I mean, come on. And other teachings. What could be left is what I want to know. <laughs> like, what is that? I love the list. I love the list. And, yeah, you know, she wrote, The Devil's Web, Who is Stalking Your Children for Satan. Is that a rhetorical question? Uh, I think maybe. And so, I mean, she was, I think she bought into it. I think she really did. Oh, no, I think she was sincere. And it's probably an example of a grieving mother looking to assign meaning to her child's, not only his death, but his life. You know, she thought if she could find a way to protect others from meeting the same fate, she would have accomplished something. So, I mean, it's hard to falter for her thought process. However, her list makes it a little bit easier to not take it so seriously. These events served as kindling for the bonfire which was to come. Yes, which many people lovingly called the satanic panic. Which is the greatest metal band that never was. Also needs to be on t-shirt. We should just print t-shirts. Let's stop doing the podcast. Uh, and so this really went to full fruition when started having these wild satanic ritual abuse claims coming from several preschools. Obviously, because where is the devil going to set up shop if he comes to town? Preschool. Anyone who's ever worked in a preschool may not think that's that far off, now that I've said it. I don't know that there's a lot of satanic worship at preschools, but maybe I'm wrong. Let's 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 see. Um, the first case of that kind of marked this sexual abuse allegation pandemic, which eventually spread global, spoiler alert, was in Kern County, California in 1982. But the one that I think probably leaned the most on satanic ritual abuse and was most publicized and most widely read about was one that occurred in the McMartin Preschool, also in California. So with this case, you had a woman who had her children there, Judy Johnson, and she believed that her son was sodomized by Ray Buckley, who was affiliated with the school. And she reported this to the police, and L- the LAPD did start an investigation and actually sent notices out to all the parents that they were investigating the school because of these wild claims. They also implicated Buckley directly, by name, and asked the parents to ask their children about it, which kind of started a thing. Right, and as you know, if you ask children, a lot of times they'll agree with you. It's very easy to lead them on to things. And this very much ties in with that recovered memory therapy. While they didn't, none of them actually went through the specific recovered memory therapy, um, they did have some people that came in with the, with the Children's Institute International. That was an L.A. group that helped kids that were abused, which is great. Definitely a worthwhile cause. But they came in and started interviewing 
all of the children in the school and started interviewing other people around the city as well. They ended up interviewing over 300 kids, and um, the woman that was in charge's name was Key McFarlane. So actually, they interviewed well over 300 kids, but they were able to provide 300 or more claims of satanic ritual abuse. Now, Key is interesting because she was the pioneer of the anatomically correct questioning doll. So I actually had this question on my boards, and it asked if this was an appropriate way to interview children about sexual abuse. What was the correct answer to uh, that? The correct answer was hell no. Hell no, D. Yes. And I think I got that one right. Good. Yay! Year. As you can see with children, it's very easy to lead the witness. So by asking a child with an anatomically correct doll, you know, where this person touched you, they want to please the person that's interviewing them. So they'll, you know, if they get the sense that you want them to touch the bad parts, the underwear area, then they will do that. If they get a positive response from that, they will continue on that train of thought. But with this, they found lots of other things, too, the kids apparently saw. Ooh, tell me, tell me. Some of the kids claim they saw witches flying, they traveled in hot air balloons, and that they were taken to underground tunnels under the school. Were there underground tunnels under the school? There were not. This was investigated extremely thoroughly, even with underground radar. It's been investigated as recently as, like, 2008. I think people are still looking for the tunnels. <laughs> okay, so Judy Johnson started all of this panic. Was she an upstanding member of the community? So, no, I would not say so. Okay. Uh, she was later diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. That makes for a stable witness. Yes. And then, before the trials even finished, died from chronic alcohol abuse. Lovely. It was the shot heard around the world, right? Right. So this trial got a ton of press. Eventually, there were over 17 major cases worldwide with preschools parents and children claiming this ritual satanic abuse. It continued to grow. I think there were cases in Australia, all over Europe, a few in Canada, a few in the U.S. It was very, very widespread. Apparently the Satanist network was larger in more underground tunnels than ever we knew. Right, and there were actually people that claimed it, including our dear friend, Oh, Dr. Pastor. Yes, he supported this fully. Right, he claimed that there were was an international conspiracy, you know, to the highest level of these satanic groups uh, around the world. Right, and another scientist named Hammond picked that up and said that the conspiracy went all the way to the top, all the way to the White House, that all the judges were in on it, and that these satanic groups had implanted code words with these children and they would use the code words and activate this personality that would take over they were like sleeper agents these five-year-olds you know right manchurian candidate five-year-olds precisely that trial ended in 1990 with no one being found guilty some of the trials they were found guilty and later acquitted and to date this remains the most costly trial to produce a non-guilty verdict in U.S. history. Another great use of your taxpayer dollars. Ta-da! Thank you, Judy Johnson. There was a huge panic about Satanism, as you were saying. Satanic panic. A satanic panic. Ah! So there was this huge 
epidemic of the satanic panic. Are Satan of something to be worried about? Are they lurking in the shadows in preschools, ready to snatch up our children? Well, I mean, the good ones are. Mm. The crafty ones. But, like any good religion, there are two main branches of Satanism. You have the Protestants and the Catholics, the Sunnis and the Shiites, and you have the theistic and the atheistic Satanist. The theistic Satanist evolved from the Our Lady of Indoor Coven. They were Gnostics, who said that Satan was the serpent in the garden who brought knowledge and liberation to all mankind. Which actually, if you think about it, is a pretty noble thing to do. The atheistic Satanist, the majority of modern Satanists subscribe to this belief system. Right, and this was the modern Church of Satan found in the 60s. Correct. That's the moniker they use. Which, interestingly, in Michelle Remembers, Michelle Smith, Nay Padzer, or Padzer Nay Smith, cited that the Church of Satan was responsible for this, and they threatened to sue her, and she withdrew the statement. But the Church of Satan is very focused on like choosing your own God, and view God, or Satan, or whoever you follow, as more of a symbol. They're very humanist, very about focus on the self and self-improvement and things like this. So not really so violent, not really killing babies and rubbing body parts on them. And That's disappointing. I know they're mild-mannered people. You might be living next door to a couple of them and never even know it. I hear they're great neighbors. I probably wear black a lot. Yeah, I wear a lot of black anyway. So Satanists are not coming for my children. Um, So far as I know. No. So where are all these religious zealots? Well, they're being religious and being zealots in other religions. Interesting. Like what? Have you heard of Christianity? I think maybe. Okay, well, it's a popular religion in the United States, and apparently some people get kind of fired up about it. I have a list of people who have taken their beliefs just a little further than maybe they should have. As odd as it may seem, there are a lot of mothers who have killed their own children, believing that the children were either influenced by Satan, or that they were doing their children a favor and keeping them from becoming evil as they aged, and sending them to heaven rather than hell. Some of them just thought that they were giving their children the opportunity to meet Jesus, much like one might hope to give the children the opportunity to meet the president, or the mayor, or Justin yeah. Bieber. <laughs> um, hmm. Maybe as positive an influence. Now, it's important to state, according to the U.S. Justice Department, and especially Robert Hicks, who wrote a book called The Police and the Occult, that there's never been a crime involving children that involved satanic ritual abuse. The same cannot be said for Christianity. One of the first ones that comes to mind is Pamela Christensen. She was a pastor's wife, and authorities were alerted when they heard screaming coming from her home. She had tied up two of her daughters in their beds and stabbed them multiple times, held them at knife point, and asked if they accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. She believed that the world was ending and that she was doing them a kindness by sending them on before the end times began. This was last year. Another well-publicized woman that did this... With the trials in the news, and so yes, Andrea Yates. Andrea Yates was a mentally unstable woman who professed to be very devout and very religious. At the time that the crime took place, she was supposed to be on 24-hour watch, as decreed by the psychiatric facility that released her. 
This meant that she was to have adult supervision at all times. However, on June 20th, 2001, her husband left for work and her mom was running a little late getting there. During the time between her husband's departure for work and her mother's arrival, she corralled her five children, literally in cages, and one by one, drowned each of them in the bathtub. So why did she do this? Well, there are a variety of theories. I mean, first of all, she was just crazy. I mean, that has to be said. I don't think that needs to be left out, that this was a mentally unstable woman. And there's several cases of this. These are definitely mentally unstable people. There's a psychological component to it. This really can't be chalked up to purely religion. So there's a very interesting book called In Pursuit of Satan, The Police and the Occult, written by Robert Hicks, a former U.S. District Attorney or formerly of the U.S. Justice Department. I'm not actually sure what the difference is. And I'm sorry if I mistitled you, Mr. Hicks. Just drop me a note and I'll put a correction in. He wrote this book kind of dealing with this kind of hysteria. But one thing that he notes is that mental illness always takes a part. And if we start giving people permission to claim that religion was the cause of their actions, we're in a lurch. We can't do anything about it. And people like Andrea Yates have to be held accountable. So, yes, firstly, Andrea Yates was disturbed. She was psychotic. She was depressed. She was all manner of crazy. But something that was cited in her case was her insistence that it was her seventh deadly sin. My children weren't righteous. They stumbled because I was evil. The way I was raising them, they could never be saved. They were doomed to perish in the fires of hell. She also told her jail psychiatrist that Satan influenced her children and made them more disobedient. So every time our children are bad, kind of blame Satan. I do, but I don't drown them. You see, again, the gray area. It's just an incredibly sad case. Like when I was looking through it and reading the files, it's horrific. The intent with which she did it, the deliberateness is just something that I can't get over. It's evil. So, Sam, should I be worried when we send our kids to preschool, like we do every day? Are they going to be raped or killed by these Satanists that are controlling the lovely animal-themed preschool? I wouldn't be worried about the people at the preschool. And I wouldn't be worried about Satanist. But you might want to keep your eye on the crazy Christians. But it's just a story. Yeah. It's just a story. <laughs>